Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Scott Chaloner. This podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating those people who keep this great country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisations and to support them in the same way that they support their staff every single day of the week. Now, if you are in a leadership role yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, then please do visit leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Now, joining me on today's show on what is a warm summer morning here in the capital is Ian Brunt. Ian is the owner of antiques.co.uk, the UK's longest running antiques website. Uh, Ian, good morning and welcome to the show. Good morning, Scott, and thank you very much for asking me to be part of the show with you today. Uh, Thank you for joining us, Ian. It certainly is um, a nice day for it, and not the first time, of course, you've joined us, having appeared on the programme just a couple of months into the first COVID lockdown around about May or June 2020. And, of course, a lot has changed since then, hasn't it? We've seen intermittent social restrictions, and 12, 13 months later, we thought that it was going to be a short-term thing. We're still very much in the grip of the global pandemic now. Um, but there are some green shoots starting to appear, aren't they? But if we look back on the last sort of 15 months or so at large, to what extent would you say all of this has affected you and affected your business? I think, Scott, it's probably affected us more personally and mentally rather than our, our business. Our business has grown considerably since the beginning of the pandemic and still continues to do so. But I think the main challenge has been able to speak and relate to your staff who work for you because we've had to use the internet to do that also via all the different communication platforms, which of course is nice, but it certainly isn't the same thing as meeting them in person. My biggest Mm. problem I to overcome, I think, after the first few months was for the the morality of the staff, to keep the morale up with everybody being confined to their homes and obviously distanced from their loved ones and families and colleagues. Once we achieved that hurdle, because obviously we all had to do it, then things got slightly easier and we were all able to focus on what we were going to do whilst we were in the lockdown. And when it came to sort of directing people from that kind of, from a far point of view, I suppose, if we put it that way, did that sort of warrant a change in leadership style or approach from yourself, do you feel? I think the change in leadership became quite obvious straight away because you had to immediately understand the problems that each member who you were instructing and guiding had changed considerably. Previous to that, we were all together in one unit, and now they were facing very, very serious problems in their own lives, as well as trying to understand how the business was going to work. So from a leadership point of view, I found it quite difficult for the first few months, only in the fact that their personalities and their direction had changed somewhat because they were distracted, because they were working from their home environment. So we had to actually try and convince them successfully in the end, I'm pleased to say, that we were going to concentrate on something for a period of the day and then they had to 
work go back to their own um, their own personal uh, lifestyles and conditions that they were working in. And with regards to that sort of flexible working model, if you will, do you think that we've seen enough during the lockdown period to suggest that this is going to be the status quo from now on and perhaps we won't see the conventional office working environments return in vogue again? Well, Scott, I think that's a question for each industry. I mean, we are desperately hoping that the art and antiques industry will go back to how it was before because Mm. obviously it's a fragmented industry whereby the buyers need to to actually see and be part of the part of the industry Mm. our our main part of it is actually the social part of the industry as much as the actual the items themselves if you are looking at a manufacturing industry then obviously it doesn't really affect it in the same way as ours does because ours rotates around the enormous antiques fairs and art fairs which have possibly limited attendance for possibly the rest of this year of 2021. I wanted to believe that this could be a, a could be overcome especially with the larger art fairs but it's looking as if they are reluctant or very hesitant to to start them again because of the because of the costs more than anything else you you have to have large attendances to pay for these huge costs to organize these events Mm. so what's very much the case in the industry at the moment is you're starting to see that social side of it come back but it's a little bit of a state of limbo with the current restrictions isn't it that freedom day now that's been pushed back to July the 19th, as we know, it seems imperative that that now goes ahead as planned for the sector to really begin to recover. One would hope so, Scott, but obviously that well, I'm, I'm not a statistician to know what the actual figures are. Mm. And I would hate to, to say I think it should go back and then find that this, this virus mutated in a different way where we all had to go back into a lockdown yet again. I think as far as my business, the antiques.co.uk on the internet is concerned, we will survive whatever happens because of everybody's use of that facility. But for the general industry, I hope and pray that it will come back so people can enjoy that as part of their cultural, social and business lives. And I suppose that looking back over this sort of period that we've had where we've been in and out of lockdown and we've immensely struggled and seen great tragedy and great challenge, there has been some silver lining, I suppose, isn't there, in that we've all taken away a great deal from the pandemic and learnt an awful lot from that sort of resilience that we've had to show. Would you say that's the case for your business as well, Ian, and you come away from this experience having really learnt something? But I don't think I don't think the the British public actually realise how much they could rely on the use of the internet, and it's not just for our industry. It was an essential tool for them to survive, even for the simple things of of ordering food and and goods online. For us, um, we all agreed in our industry that the the British population probably advanced in 
technology-wise um, as far as moving forward at least five years. So two years ago, we had, a, we had an audience who was reluctant possibly to use the internet as much, and now we have an audience who has used the internet for a considerable amount of time and actually feels confident in using it in the future. However, I don't want it to become a stable, um, too stable part of our lives because obviously sitting in front of a computer um, for 12 hours a day is not going to help us as far as our social skills and our mental skills. So I think a delicate balance between all parts of our industry, and I hope we've actually, our contribution as leaders, I hope we've actually made people realize that we can carry on during these uh, terrible pandemics and keep the industry alive, which unfortunately in other sectors like the, the hospitality sector, I feel desperately sorry for them because they mm-hmm. weren't, weren't able to adapt as easily as we have. I think you raised such an important point about that over-reliance on technology, and we have seen the pitfalls of that over the course of the lockdown too, haven't we? Particularly within sort of education and also work, for for instance, where digital poverty has played a role in meaning people are left behind and can't access vital resources, can't live their day-to-day lives in the way that they need to. So when the government talks so passionately about this build back better agenda moving out of the lockdown. I think addressing that is going to be one of the most important things. Is that something that you would agree with? Yes, Scott, I really believe that we have to, we have to try and, and, and try and recreate what we had before, but I don't think it will actually come back in the same format. I think a lot of people that I know lost all, even lost confidence in actually going outside and working with other people and, 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 and being social again. It's a strange psychological thing. I think that um, the government should be looking at helping these important social industries get back in, online and get back into a marketplace that could be, could be a replica of our past. But I think they'll have to adapt in a way that a lot of our, a lot of our smaller um, antiques fairs and art fairs will not recover. It's just impossible for them to have sustained this amount of loss. Because sadly, at those like us, we didn't actually get any help from the government mm. to continue through um, the lockdown. And we, we needed extra support because of our increase. We had our increase in our revenue streams, but our development uh, costs were astronomical to keep up with the demand. So we had to bring in a lot more people than we normally would have done had it just been a non-pandemic situation. So help from the government and also help from the public to realize that we we all would like to get back into a, a relatively normal situation, but they have to understand that this isn't going to be exactly the same as it was before for a few months to come. Mm. 
I think that's very right. And there is still that element of uncertainty there over what the next few months may well look like, even if July the 19th is to go ahead as planned. And if we think about what the future might bring, Ian, just before we do wrap things up on the programme today, in an ideal world, what would you like to transpire over the next 12 months for yourself and for antiques.co.uk? And indeed, where would you like the business to be by this time in 2022? Well, like everybody, Scott, um, we all want to grow further. Um, I think one of our biggest hurdles, which we are desperately trying to understand and communicate with our followers and our customers, is currently we have a problem with um, buying works of art and antiques from overseas because the art and antiques industry is global. And when I mean it's global, it's uh, they, we buy from overseas and we sell to overseas, which may be, may be solvable, but currently it's a, a, it's a catastrophe. We have um, people now trying to travel overseas to buy and spending two weeks in customs in a French port. Generally, I think that attention to that detail would help us all over the world because England is still sort of as the sort of center of art and antiques. And I really don't want the world then to move to another country thinking they're a center. I have to be totally frank with you that this happened earlier on in my career when we wondered why all the Americans had suddenly disappeared shopping in our little local antique stores and the answer was it was when the Americans learned the French could speak English. Now we need to be careful as a country to carry on promoting the excellence that we've got in the United Kingdom and hopefully have that support from from the various um, governmental uh, departments. And let us certainly hope for the sake of our industry in the UK that that support certainly is forthcoming. And I think as the picture post-pandemic starts to become clearer and we see whether that support is indeed going to be there, I would actually love Ian to catch up again and even maybe have you back on the show once more just to see what shape the industry is taking in that post-COVID world. And hopefully it will be quite a positive story by that time. But let's just keep our fingers crossed. It would be a great pleasure, Scott. And I hope it's all a very positive outcome and a positive future. I certainly hope so as well. I'm confident that better days are coming, but there are still some variables in that. So all we can do, of course, at this point in time is sit and hope. And in the meantime as well, Ian, please do continue to take care and stay safe with everything still going on. And it's been wonderful having you back on the programme. And you too, Scott. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure for me to welcome Ian Brunt, owner of antiques.co.uk, back onto the Leaders Council podcast. Uh, coming up next on the show, we'll be joined by Leaders Council Chairman and former Education Secretary, Lord David Blunkett, who will be discussing his take on the 15 months of pa- the pandemic and his hopes for the weeks and months ahead. That will be coming up now. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, Well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, which uh, we must touch on. 
Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks, those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the, the grant, 10000 or 25000 all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world. And being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term uh, effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and product productivity and, and the production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is as far as humanly possible is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're, we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from n knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of 
going into the the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself, and there's been ups and downs, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen the same on the international scene for Mm. all kinds of reasons, Uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, um, the food chain and the like, Uh, but also, I think, in terms of seeing the the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm -hmm. But actually, I think there's a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it Mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I, I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK, we, we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's uh, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent uh, the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and consent mm. that's required Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible, proportional 
balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead Mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust, and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to to demonstrate their capability. So I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because Mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy, I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. 
Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, now- it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, Rightly so. Um, Now, was pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. We did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and and real, on the back of that. It was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And, of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would. people criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You, you, can, you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Uh, shut um, these kind of things you, you can look at. But you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, Mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. But very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm-hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems 
if that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously, we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without creating even more anxiety. We can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to, to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges, and they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives, for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic, concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, remember a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019, I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did 
from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is layered in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm-hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from the second week in May on the side of the Hawks in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr. Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government. And the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. So Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent a professional lawyer who, as director of public prosecutions, led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn Mm -hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the the disaffected uh, labor, former labor voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a a great leader of the opposition, 
more importantly, will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition as well as a government that we clearly want to do well because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. And we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector. People with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them. Above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakir needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed as it did in the 1980s and early 90s to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Secure has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work and those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times and you know, the leaders council those sharing their thoughts with uh, uh, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up 
in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from mm-hmm. each other. That is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, thank really you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Blunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Chaloner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.